theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaclia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Joy. Good morning, Dr. Amy. How are you? Well, we have some guests today with us who are experts in their field. We are going to talk about culturally responsive teaching and the other CRT. Other CRT. (laughs) And what I like about this conversation is we have a professor here who's used CRT, critical race theory, as a framework for some of the research he's done. And we have a professor who has done a lot of training with culturally responsive teaching in district schools. And so we're gonna talk about what the difference is and how it has gotten maybe conflated. Let me introduce Dr. Tim Harrington, who received his bachelor's in secondary mathematics education from Columbus State University in Columbus, Georgia. He earned his MS Ed in Curriculum and Instruction and his PhD in Urban Education from Cleveland State University in Cleveland, Ohio. He has worked for the previous 17 years in higher education for the state of Illinois at another state institution where, and ours, where he's a wonderful colleague and he has been a faculty member department chairperson and a liaison between the university and the state on various matters. So welcome, Dr. Harrington. Thank you, that was uh, quite an impressive introduction. Holy cow. (laughs) Well, let me introduce Dr. Marlon Cummings as well. He earned his bachelor's in science in biological engineering from Florida A&M University his master's in public administration from the American University and his PhD in urban education policy and organizational leadership from the University of Illinois, Chicago. Dr. Cummings career in education began as a middle school science and math teacher in Washington, DC. After working as a teacher for several years, he shifted his career to nonprofit leadership and now works alongside us in post-secondary education, coordinating the doctorate program in interdisciplinary leadership. Welcome. Thank you, glad to be here. Good morning, so so let's get into this, okay? There is much deeply misguided and misinterpreted chatter these days about critical race theory, CRT. Some teachers are banned from teaching about our nation's complete history because of critical race theory. Amy, as an English teacher, I know that bothers you to no end. 
an actual academic theory that isn't taught in America's public schools has been co-opted for political points. But in fact, what we should be talking about is the other CRT, that is culturally responsive teaching. One might argue the two are connected because if we had a better understanding about our lived experiences and racial and ethnic backgrounds, maybe more people would understand the value of teaching by affirming students' backgrounds. I wanna know, let's ask to Dr. Harrington this question. What is critical race theory? So critical race, critical race theory is, is a theory that it has roots relatively newer. I think it was originally started to be discussed in the 80s and 90s. And critical race theory has to do with how systems have been developed, how processes have been developed, how our life experiences in this country have been developed on the back of, well, it's, you just have to say it, racist policies, that we have systemic racism, we have institutional racism. And these are things that are built into, if we're understanding it, it are built into our society and no one has really looked at those aspects until we started talking about critical race theory. And, and the one piece of critical race theory that I think might cross over to this other CRT is one of the other, uh, one of the components of critical race theory talks about the social construction of race. And in this country, the social construction of race was built on the idea that one set of people were less than another set of people. And uh, it, those could have been Native Americans, they could have been African-Americans, they could have been Hispanic, Latino, Latinx people. But it, it, there's this social construction of what race is. And uh, when we're talking about culturally responsive teaching, which Dr. Cummings is going to talk some about, we, we talk about understanding a person's culture to understand how they learn, to, to how we should teach to them, not not this idea that if we're using a culturally responsive teaching, that somehow we're teaching that our whole culture was co-opted or, or, or that the history uh, of our country is maybe different than some of the things that we've learned, some of the things that we've been told. So, so that's where there's a convergence a little bit is this social construction of race because that informs how we teach to students as teachers. And so that's just an example of how this has been co-opted a little bit. Because if you're talking about critical race theory, you're talking about something that's totally different than culturally responsive teaching. Right, that, that's a really good explanation. So thank you for helping frame that up. Why is critical race theory such a challenge? How is it misinterpreted and how should we really be looking at this? So critical race theory is a difficult topic to, to discuss because it is it, it has to come from a place where you start to think about the notions of whiteness and blackness, if we just want to talk about those two. And if we're talking about blackness and we look at the, the literature about blackness, 
that is a very positive term. It means taking control of your, uh, of your culture, of yourself, and it's used in a very positive way, where whiteness is born out of a legacy of oppression and things like the Ku Klux Klan. So the idea of whiteness comes from a negative place where the, the idea of blackness comes from a positive place. And so when you think about saying that systems are in place to help one group over another, the group that is being favored doesn't want the system to change, whether or not they agree with it or not, they're still a benefit of it. They still benefit from it. So even though I'm aware of my own, I can only talk about my own history. And, and, and even though I'm aware of my, my own history, that doesn't mean that I understand or I want, uh, let me give you an example. I might get pulled over by the police. And when I do, my reaction to getting pulled over to the police might be very different from Marlon, Dr. Cummings' experience getting pulled over by the police. I remember I had an, an experience maybe a year ago where I got pulled over. I was going a little over the speed limit. And I had put my wallet in, and my wallet was in my coat, was in the back seat. So after I got pulled over, I reached into the back seat and got my wallet out of my coat. And I thought to myself after that, that experience, that if I had been an African-American and I was reaching into the back seat after getting pulled over, that experience might have been way different, right? That's a, 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 a way in practicality that we see, I think, the outcomes of uh, some of the systemic racism and, and institutional racism coming into play right there. Right. Um, and some of that outcome is racial trauma. Dr. Amy and I talked about this before. I actually stopped by her house to pick a book up from her house. She said, oh, it's in my garage. Just go in the garage and pick it up. We're not at home. And she lives in a predominantly white rural area. And so my husband and I pulled up and he's this attractive, tall, big black guy. He's a former football player. So he's kind of massive. And I asked him to go in her garage and get it. He said, no, he said, absolutely not. He said, do you know where we are? I'm not going to do that. He said, so here's the plan. You're going to get out. You're going to run to the garage while I turn the car around. Then you're going to run back and we're going to speed off. And that was his reality. And even though I am of Black descent, I don't have that experience that he has, as you talk about, as a, as a Black male and that racial trauma that Black males have. And that whole social constructs just really change how he views things and how he interacts with individuals. I want to really get an explanation now of culturally responsive teaching. Marlon, could you kind of unpack that for us? Yeah, and thank you for your explanation on, on critical race theory, Dr. Hamilton. It was really, really helpful. Culturally responsive teaching, I think, has gotten, when we think about the word culture, Oftentimes it gets caught up in being focused solely on racial identity, right? But culture is inclusive of things that are well beyond race. We're talking about things that are, whether it be your religion, 
socioeconomic status, your actual like heritage or your customs or beliefs, your age, right? The, the, whether you are older, whether you're um, a minor or a young adult or a senior citizen, your gender, your sexual orientation, even ableism, right? Even your disability, put you, these are different cultures that exist within, within our society. And cultural res responsive teaching or cultural responsive leadership really looks at how do I look at those things and honor them within a person and work to support them educationally in the way that they need. A student that is a student that is maybe disabled has different needs than a student that is not, right? So how am I as a teacher being thoughtful to that? A student who may live in a rural area or a, a farming community versus a suburban or urban area, well, I need to think about, well, what are the examples that I use in my teaching practice so that I can make sure that, 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 they, that they get the lesson and that they don't lose it with, with trying to interpret different types of living or different types of cultures, right? And so cultural responsive teaching is really looking at how, do I, how am I honoring the, the students that are in my classroom? not just my school, but in my classroom, each individual student. And it's not that I just see boys and girls or black kids or white kids or Latinx kids or, or Asian kids or Middle Eastern kids. I see John, Johnny. I see little Susie. I see, I see Damien. I see Javier, right? And I see these students and I see who they are, what they bring. And then I try to work to support them in those needs. And I think it, it, Teachers are used to doing this, right? Well, uh, teachers understand differentiation, right? And it's it's kind of aligned with that, but it's really looking at what are the the particular needs of that student given their cultural context, given those things that I mentioned, where they come from, their background, whether they are maybe we have a student that is lives really far away from the school, and so when they get in, they're tired, they're groggy because they slept on the way to school, right? Because they have to get up very early to ride the bus, and so. What does that look like and, and, and how am I being responsive to that student in, in teaching them? And so while race is important and a part of culture, it is not the sole determinant of, of how of how culturally responsive teaching is, is kind of is, is utilized. I remember Dr. Joy talking about her first year teaching. Share with us what you understood about your students and how you changed your teaching practice. When I started teaching, I was thrust in a classroom of 40 non-English speaking students. Most of my students came from Mexico or Guatemala, and they were first generation in the U.S. So my practices had to change. So two things that I learned, my students were, many of them were poor. I learned very quickly that I needed to invest in Cheerios because I couldn't teach if they were hungry, even if they were in the middle of the day, in order for me to get their attention, their bellies had to be full. And as a new teacher, all I could afford to do was keep a big box of Cheerios. The other thing I learned, because I'm a planner <laughs> and homework was Monday through Friday and this amount, and I, I used the, the 10 minute rule and all of those things. And it wasn't working for my students because they went to church. Most of them were Catholic and they went to church midweek. And this was not important for them. Many of them had come, this was eighth grade. So many of them had finished school already in Mexico at sixth grade. And now they're being forced to come to school. 
And so this was not their priority. Some of them had jobs, but they definitely went to church. They had other priorities. So I had to say, hey, this is not working. They're not doing homework on Wednesday. So why should I give homework on Wednesday? That's something that I had to come to realize because I valued my students. I didn't want it to be punitive. I wanted them to be successful. So I had to learn their culture. You know, I couldn't, I knew the language, but I didn't know the culture. So I had to learn the culture and I had to be amenable to those things. I feel like that kind of exemplifies some of those pieces. It might look at a class as a whole and you're changing those teaching practices based on the culture in the classroom. It might not get to the individual, but it is serving the needs for a majority perhaps of the students. But I want to ask this Dr. Cummings, is there any place where culturally responsive teaching intersects with critical race theory? How has this been confused into one term, one approach? Maybe that's two questions. Uh, Maybe. I don't know. I'll I'll take a stab and you let me know if I get it. I I think one is the acronym. <laughs> we in education, we love our acronyms. And so using CRT, they use them interchangeably. If you go in, if, if somebody is writing about critical race theory, they're going to use that acronym CRT. If they're writing about critical response, cultural responsive teaching, they'll use that acronym CRT in, in their writing. And, and that can get, that can be part of it. As I said, with c- cultural responsive teaching, race is part of someone's culture, right? If I'm Black, that, that, that that's, they have a culture there. If I have, if I'm white or if I'm Irish or if I am Mexican or or Dominican or from Brazil, right? These things they 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 carry some type of some some type of racial cultural identity. And so, with CRT, CRT is saying that that is a particular lens as, as to which to how we can understand some of the complexities that, 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 that happen in the world. That's probably the only place where they intersect is that race is a culture, is a part of someone's culture, right? It can be, but again, it's socially constructed. So this, the culture, some of the cultures that we have in the U.S., they don't exist in other places, right? You know, black, white is, is not as much of an issue as whether you're from one region or another. And so I think the only place that they intersect is that race is a factor in both of them but when it comes to when it comes to culturally responsive teaching it can't be just race that is that, that you have to go deeper than that because what if i'm i'm in when i can be a white teacher in a in a, a, a all white community and there are culturally responsive teaching issues that exist whether kids are from different communities whether kids are different socioeconomic statuses where the kids are even different, like they might be Polish or Irish, and that's all white, right? And German and Russian, and these are all could be considered white, but culturally they're very different spaces, and so um, and 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 that can exist in one in one community, and so I think that they they are two different things. They're totally different things, and actually I believe that the 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 conversation is more broadly about critical race theory. I, I don't I don't. I think when people understand culturally responsive teaching, people, parents would expect you to do it. I think that it's, it's an expectation that, hey, you're going to meet my kid where they are and, and treat them as an individual and not just another kid in the class. We are talking to Dr. Timothy Harrington and Dr. Marlon Cummings. 
experts, years of experience in education, education, leadership, and experts in cultural matters. And we're talking about culturally responsive teaching and the other CRT. And I promised Dr. Cummings that now we need to actually say the word and not just use CRT because we've talked about how the two are conflated and this misuse and misguided, these terms have been put together. So thank you for being here. This is for Dr. Marlon and Dr. Tim. What are the implications of confusing critical race theory and culturally responsive teaching? I think, I think you're seeing that now where there are, there is a litany of bills across the country and communities where they are trying to limit what teachers can teach, the scope of what teachers can teach, to the point where there are bills that have punishments for teachers, including termination and fines, if they teach something outside of the, the, the well of whatever that community now is deeming appropriate. And it, it, it certainly reminds me somewhat of book burnings in the 50s and, and where, because here's the thing is, is, in my opinion, hate does not live in books. Hate lives in people's hearts. And if they, if they have that hate in their heart, then they'll find that hate in the tremendous amount of, I'm going to say this, and I'm sure I'm going to get some, some slack about it, but I think that there is a tremendous amount of white guilt and, and so when you start talking about race and things that have happened in the past, people want to distance themselves from that. They want to say, well, that wasn't me. You know, I didn't do that. My family didn't do that. So I shouldn't be lumped in with this group of people who like, and, and I'm not saying white people are bad. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying that people, some, a certain segments of this population have historically been given opportunities and options that other groups of people in this country have not. And there have been policies in place, home ownership policies, where people can live, who the banks would give loans to. These are all systemic racist policies that are born out of slavery, that are born out of this idea that somebody is better or more important or, or is more of a human than somebody else. And so you have people that are afraid that they're going to be judged based on if we start talking about things like reparations, people are, people are, are, well, I shouldn't do it. I didn't get any, you know, I didn't get any benefit from this, especially like if you were say a, say you were from Appalachia and you were from a poor white Appalachian that has, that just does not have many means and, and it comes from a poor community. And they're going to say, well, I didn't benefit from but but there were other things that that downtrodden them. There were other policies in place that 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 hurt them. Uh, we're just talking about the systemic racism that has to do with that has to do with race. I mean, racism has to do with race. So it it it's it, it and it shows itself in a variety of ways if you look for it. So I'll give you an instance from my own past where, where I graduated from high school. When I graduated from high school, we had to have two homecoming queens. We had to have one white homecoming queen and one black homecoming queen. My high school was in central Georgia and 
the the administration decided they had to do this to 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 have racial harmony in the school because if we if we elected just a white homecoming queen whatever if there were more white students in the school then there was going to be a white homecoming queen if there was more black students in the school there would be a black homecoming queen and at one point i think that there was more african american students and so the decide, decision was made that we that we have to have two homecoming queens so that somebody can be represented from both races and it's very short-sighted in my mind and and it and it really plays into the 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 reasons why people want to investigate critical race theory why people want to look at why the systems that we have set up have created the the spaces that we have why uh, why are there more african-american males in jail than there are in college that that doesn't just happen there has to be policies and, and things in place that have created the environment where this happened. And so I'll get off my high horse now and I'll let Dr. Cummings talk some, but uh, that's, that's my two cents. And, and Dr. Cummings, as you respond to this also, I just wonder, let's talk about the culturally responsive teaching and what that looks like, because we are in a situation where we have a teacher shortage. Today, still more than 80% of our teachers are white females. We have very little diversification in teaching in spite of the fact that more than 50% of our K-12 population are diverse students, are people of color. And so talk about the significance of culturally responsive teaching in light of that. So one thing that is, one, well, I wanna say one thing before I, before I answer that, and I'll say this. Make no mistake about it. I mean, critical race theory is it is not something that should be that, that should be taught in schools, but there is systemic racism that exists in our country. I mean, it, it stems from slavery. You have Jim Crow, right? And you have lots of policies which have disproportionately impacted people of color or people of low income, right? So so it it, 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 it is a lens in which to look at the world. And I think that it would be, we would be short-sighted to, to, to like discount it either because it is something, it is a valuable uh, tool for understanding some things in our world or, or, or one given, gives one perspective on things. But again, it's not something that should really be taught in K-12 space, right? What we want to be focused on is how do we respond to students' needs, right? And so when thinking about critical race theory, uh, 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 cultural responsive teaching and and the teacher shortage, what research shows that students tend to do better when they have a teacher that, that, that looks like them, right? So black students will perform, perform better when they have black teachers in front of them, Latinx, Latinx Asian, Asian teachers in front of them. However, students of other races or white students do not, do not lose out by having those students. They actually also benefit as well because they get that cultural interaction and those teachers are highly qualified and they're able and they're able to support those students in in in, in the same way a white teacher has. So there's a double benefit that happens when we have more teachers of color. The problem is is that in, in there have been some barriers in terms of how we how we train and develop teachers and certify teachers. We which many states and federal legislations are working with uh, are working on. Because there is, while there may be some standardized tests that maybe students of color struggle with, 
there's more to teaching than just being able to pass that test. And there is something that we lose when we don't have a diverse teacher population, which also includes men, right? And, and destigmatizing um, the idea that teaching is, a, it, particularly recently, I mean, back in the olden times, it was men that, that were the teachers. And then there was a shift, I'm sure it had probably around some wars that, that shifted to, to women. And now even we, I've had students, particularly in, 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 our, in uh, Latinx culture, say that, you know, men don't become teachers. That's, that's women's work. That's, you don't do that. But so many students would so, would so greatly benefit from having students, male teachers of color, but just teachers of color in front of them. And so it's something that, I mean, I, I think we need to be purposeful in, in our efforts towards because from a culturally responsive teaching standpoint, it, it only aids in, in providing a more diverse teacher group within a school, but also supporting the understanding and interaction of students with, with people of, of, other, of other races and cultures. And that is one step, one of the steps towards um, reducing the, the, this, this unknown, the unknowns between different races and different cultures by just by having positive exposures in, in their lives. And so I think working towards more teachers of color is something that, that is, we, we, we really have to work on it and we really have to really be targeting and targeting those communities to, to get them into our, our ranks. So we are in the process of implementing culturally responsive teaching and leading standards in Governor State University's curriculum and teaching leadership and school support personnel programs. What is your goal? What is your hope in implementing those standards? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So, all right. So we're talking about culturally responsive teaching, all right? But my research is really kind of focused a little bit more on, on leadership a little bit, because I believe that in order for this to work, right, let's say Dr. Amy and I, we are teachers in, a, in an elementary school, and we both, like, we believe in culturally responsive teaching, we went to a PD, and we're going to do this, and we're going to work together to for our, our students and our second grade students, we're going to work on them, or our ninth grade students in English, we're going to approach our teaching in that way. Well, when they leave our classroom, they leave our space. They don't have that, right? They, the, the school space isn't set up where culturally responsiveness is, is infused in all aspects. And that's why I think what I'm hoping with these standards is that we begin to build teachers and leaders that can be thoughtful about culturally responsiveness, developing a whole school environment where all of the teachers are, are, are practicing it, where the, the school leader is making time for professional development, where they are working with not only the teachers, but also support staff, the, the, the school secretary that meets almost everybody that comes to the school building, the cafeteria workers, the school bus drivers that work with the students that have to diffuse conflict between kids. How is that being infused through all of our schools? And so I'm what I'm hopeful is that two things can happen. One, we're going to be sending out with these new standards teachers and leaders that are armed with this understanding. And sometimes it's just the understanding that you need in order to start to make strides towards progression. And then hopefully through other means and other, and other professional development, those that are already existing out in, out in the field can get, can get some of those standards as well. I really like that you were so inclusive when you were talking about professional development. There are so many people who interact with our students not just the teachers in front of them in the classroom, but the person in the front office, the counselors, the psychologist, cafeteria, bus, 
But yes, administrators, and it does have a strong culture. There's a culture to a school and the administrator leads that culture and develops and establishes the culture in many ways. How do you approach training teachers and administrators to be culturally responsive? That's a good question. I've been doing a lot of that lately. It's interesting work. The first place where I always try to start with is self-reflection, right? We have to own up to whatever, who we are, right? My, what is my, what is my culture? We like to use the word, what is my identity? Like, how do I identify? So who is that? Who is, who, who, who am I? What is my background, my history, my family, right? What are the things that I, what are the biases that I have towards different people, different cultures, different whatever, right? And just own it, right? This is who I am. This is what I bring, right? Because we all bring something to this work, right? Because we are individuals, we're people. People bring things in their life and their history to their work. Now, once you know you you have that, now own it and, and, and reduce and get rid of the guilt, right? Get over the guilt, whatever, if you're, mom was racist, your grandma still uses foul language and would, it's fine. Now that you know, how can you work towards doing better, right? And so it always starts there with getting over the stuff that, that you bring and your history and your past or the past or, or, or the, the faults or, the, or the, the misdeeds of your culture or, or your race, get over it. It's not your fault. Let's get past it. Now that we know that and we've accepted who we are, how can we start to work on those on, on, on our students? And how can we start to have conversations and dialogue with, with individuals in our school? So getting over ourselves and then creating place and space for teachers and staff to have open and honest conversations about, about this work. And I think getting a with a mediator, right? So like, you know, we're going to do our, in, in the beginning of the year, we're going to have staff development. And we are going to spend half of our day, half of our four days, just half a day, we're going to focus on this and we're going to be intentional about it, right? A lot of times it's about being intentional. It's less about, we're going to do this grand thing. Let's, let's be intentional about talking about it. Let's be intentional about following up. Let's do things like when we have staff meetings, like when we, like in the College of Education, how Dr. Harrington, under his leadership, we are talking about these issues of race, talking about these issues of culture and having open and honest dialogue helps everybody to grow, helps the whole, the whole department, the whole system, the whole uh, community grow together. And I think that when, when we can begin to build that, that's how we move this work forward. And so that's kind of where I start with, but it, it's not, and it's also, I remind them, it's not something that happens overnight. It is a one think about school change school change uh, you know you need right. three to five years three to five years yeah right and so mm -hmm. the same thing when this work and I've done it with schools it takes two three five years two to three years before you start to see the change and the students see the change and the parents see the change and and, and it happens but mm -hmm. it's not it doesn't happen it takes time Dr. Harrington and Dr. Cummings mentioned us can you talk more about what we're doing in the division of education to learn more about ourselves and culturally responsive teaching. So I just like for our listeners to hear more about that. And then Dr. Cummings, when he's done, if you could talk more about for people who are seeking to understand more about culturally responsive teaching, where do they start? What do they suggest? What do you suggest, Dr. Harrington? Yeah, so I, I want to follow up on something that Dr. Cummings said as well. 
which is the idea of implicit bias. Every person has some implicit bias about some things. It's not it's not a, a snidely whiplash, twist your mustache, you're trying to be evil. It's just that our experiences don't always allow us to have a full understanding of things. So for instance, I took, I took a bunch of educators from Chicago, South side of Chicago, and I planted them in a rural school in Southern Minnesota and in a tribal school in South Dakota. And, but what I had them do was write about what they expected to see, write about what their experience was going to be. And, and then we went and had the experience and then I had them look at what they wrote and we talked about all the implicit bias that they brought to this, to the situation. So it's an awareness level, like Dr. Cummings is saying is there has to be an awareness level and things don't change unless we, we make a, a plan to change them. So when, when teaching first was a profession in this country, I'm certain that there was a lot of rote memorization and, and I'm going to read it to you, you read it back to me kind of teaching. And it wasn't until Vygotsky and Piaget and, and other researchers found that there's better and different ways to reach people that we started to realize that, oh, we can't just teach in one teaching style. I mean, like we can't teach, teach audily, uh, auditorily. We have to teach kinesthetically. We have to teach visually. We can't approach it one way. And this is another one of those things that we have to, we're now coming up on. Like pedagogy was fought about for a while and people didn't want to change. And if I don't, if I, if we don't do rote memorization, then they're never going to learn their times tables. It was the idea that, yeah, we have to memorize times tables, but we got to understand what multiplication is first. Right. If we can understand what multiplication is, then we can make informed dis decisions about whether our answers look correct or not. So we have this notion of implicit bias. And, and so I would put it out to anybody that's listening. The next time you're going to go somewhere new, if you're going to go to a new community, if you're going to go to the city, you haven't been to the city before. If you're going to go to a, a rural experience, if you're going to go to a foreign country, if you're going to go to another state. Sit down it, just with yourself and write down what you expect you're going to see when you get there. When you go to Tennessee and you go to Nashville, what are you going to see, right? You've never been to Nashville. You've seen some stuff on the Today Show or whatever. What do you, what is, and then when you go there, experience the people and then look back at what you wrote. It, you're going to have bias. And so we have to understand that we have bias. So what I'm doing in the division is I have allowed a space for faculty to look at themselves through the lens of education, but also through the lens of culturally responsive teaching so that we can start to understand because we're the trainers of the trainers. If we're not aware of where bias is, if we're not aware of the aspects of culturally responsive teaching, and uh, then, then we have to get right with that before we're trying to train our teachers to to make those changes, right? We can't teach something we don't understand. So by giving everybody this space, it's just an opportunity in my mind for people to explore themselves, explore their own bias, and then maybe make some changes in their teaching uh, style based on that. So that's, that's what I'm trying to accomplish, the professional development that I've uh, approved and, and uh, supported in, in this division. And I think that it's important that we look at ourselves through the lens of some of these things, because we are the trainers of the trainers.
right? That's uh, whatever we train them, that's what they're going to go do for the next 30 or 40 years. And it's going to be hard to change their mind to do something different because this is what I was trained to do. This is what I'm supposed to do. So we have to take a hard look at ourselves in order for there any real change to happen. Dr. Cummings will give you the final words. Final words, huh? Well, thank you for that, Dr. Harrington. And, and again, thank you for your leadership and, and doing that in our, in our division. I appreciate it. The One of the things that he mentioned, Dr. Harrington, was implicit bias. So I think one way we talked about how can people get started. I think being looking at your implicit bias is one way. Again, I think taking a self-reflection. Sometimes that's hard to do by yourself, but there's a, there is a, a test you can take through Harvard University. They have an implicit bias test and it covers a lot, a lot of different tests where it looks at race or gender, or age, all, all kinds of different biases that you can have. And I, I, I would say, take some of those so you can begin to just kind of look at, take, do some self-reflecting um, and, and think about that. Think about if you are currently teaching, think about the students in your classroom and, and how in each individually, how you how you treat them and the ones you're a little short with. Do they remind you of somebody <laughs> that a, a student that gave you trouble back in the day? They remind you of a of a of a person that bullied you. I remember a kid that I used to was rough on and that, it reminded me of a kid that bullied me. And I had to I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm hard on this kid. I wasn't like mean to him, but I was like harder. Come on, you could do more. And it was because he reminded me of somebody that had done something to me. And so like, check yourself and check your things at the door. Also, you need to read and, and read more. I think looking at scholars, like particularly for culturally responsive teaching on Geneva Gay is an, is an important one to look at. She is, has done some great work and, and is really like does kind of some of the foundational work in culturally responsive teaching. Some new scholars, uh, a scholar by the name of Cesare Warren, who looks at empathy and teacher disposition and, and, and culturally responsive pedagogy. So it's, I would say, spend some time reading because I think that'll help you get that, get there, and then begin having conversations and start having conversations with your colleagues, your friends, and, and begin to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think that those are good places to start. If you wanna take something to your classroom, Look at the, just look simply at the, the, the resources and readings that you have for your students. Take, make some simple changes, add some cultural diversity, some racial diversity in those things, some able diversity, some age diversity within those readings. And, and I think that that is a very easy place to start because once students start seeing themselves and what they're learning, it, it, it matters more to them. And so I, I, I think those are some really great places to start. And uh, can I just can I just add um, if we're going to talk about some future readings or things that that people can take away from this, I would suggest that people read Lisa Delpit. I would suggest that people read Gould and the Mismeasure of Man to understand how some of the standardized test biases have crept in to our society. And really, what Dr. Cummings is saying is important. Is it, you could start by writing a my story, which is write your story. When you write your story, you will start to see if you're being honest about your story, where things twist and turns and things happened. Maybe things happened for a reason. Maybe you did things, but it's important to understand your, your story so that you can know where you came from and what's informing your thought processes, right? So we, we all grow and change if we take the opportunity to grow and change. But 
that is, it's hard work. And it sometimes is, is difficult work. So reading things like what uh, Dr. Cummings has suggested, or like Delpit, or, or The Mismeasure of Man by Gould, it just gives you an opportunity to see, like, what other people think of certain situations, how other people approach, or to read a book like Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Just something to challenge or to open your eyes or to challenging our worldview is not a bad thing. So like reading some of this stuff and challenging some of the thoughts that you may have had is important, but difficult. Well, you've both left us with a lot to think about and some actionable steps to take. And I'm glad we've had this conversation today. There is a lot of confusing information out there, but to have this discussion, to start the dialogue is really important and read, introduce books to children, allow them to see themselves in those books and those conversations are really important. Thank you for being with us today. It's been a wonderful opportunity to learn more, as we always do when Dr. Joy and I are together having conversations with our guests. You two are amazing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy.